Genesis 49, we're going to begin at verse 20, and we're going to take a final look at the blessings and prophecies that the patriarch Jacob pronounced upon his twelve sons who would become the twelve tribes of Israel. And really, this is about like 1,800 years before the coming of Christ, so in a way, just as far back in time as Jesus is from us, um, that's how far about he is from the patriarch with these blessings. And so God had a lot to do in his history, and it really begins with the, the kernels here planted in the end of Genesis. Uh, and it's been a rich study, I think, for us to, to delve deep and review each tribe's role in the drama of redemptive history. And we've drawn lessons from these prophecies and fulfillments uh, that could apply to us as God's people. And so this is part three of my little uh, mini-series here, and um, I've titled it Lessons from the Twelve Tribes. Lessons from the Twelve Tribes. And today we will conclude and delve into the final four tribes um, in this sort of series we've been doing. We did four one week, we did four last week, and it sort of divides perfectly. We're going to do the final four tribes today, and there's a lot of valuable insights in these final four. These final four tribes that we're going to uh, review today uh, each have an added bonus to them in that each one has some kind of special connection to a part of the New Testament. And so we'll see that today. With all that kept in mind, I just want to jump straight in with the ground to cover. Uh, Let's go straight to Genesis 49 and let's go expectantly and prayerfully that the Spirit would illumine our minds to see wondrous things in His Word. Genesis 49, we're going to start in verse 20. And having spoken to eight of his sons around his deathbed, Jacob now turns to another son. And his name is Asher. He turns to Asher. Here's what he says. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Interesting prophecy. It's one that you would probably just, you would keep reading in your Bible and go, okay. Uh, We've seen all kinds of prophecies so far in this chapter. Some are more elaborate than others. Uh, Some are words of rebuke, and some are great promises. And now Jacob turns to Asher and basically tells him in essence, Asher... Your tribe's food is going to be the bomb. And then he just, he just moves on to the next son. Like, what? what? <laughs> okay. So what we're really left to do here um, with pithier prophecies like this is, is go forward in our Bibles and see how Asher's subsequent history becomes fulfilled to see the bigger picture. And so the prophecy itself looks beyond merely just food, by the way. And it looks really to the abundance of wealth that would characterize this tribe. Uh, this is going to be a tribe that is abundant in produce with a fertile soil and lots of rain. And from this food, they're going to be able to make gourmet meals and delicacies and morsels that are fit for kings. Uh, the word rich literally just means fat. It's rich in its... Um, olive oil and other things they would have that were commodities. And it speaks to their own wealthy status as a people uh, with fine eating. It possibly also has literal fulfillment that would take place later on in the court of Israel's kings. A lot of people don't know this, but during uh, Solomon's time, it says in 1 Kings 4 that he had each tribe in Israel take a turn by the month to provide for the royal provisions. And I imagine the kings looked forward with great anticipation to when it was Asher's turn to provide the king's food. So there could be a literal royal fulfillment there. Now I'm going to get specific about some texts about Asher's role in Israel's history. But at the outset, sometimes a simple observation serves as a lesson. And so I see a lesson already just by looking at Asher's abundance of wealth. Here's something worth noting for God's people. Uh, We learn from Asher 
It is acceptable to possess abundance and enjoy physical blessings in this life. It is acceptable to possess abundance and enjoy physical blessings in this life. Now, I don't want to make too much of that point since we're supposed to beware of materialism. But I do think some need to hear this. Uh, This lesson can anchor us from drifting into another extreme which many in church history have fallen into. In the early centuries of the church, they would have done well to remember that creation is a gift of God. They were oftentimes influenced by Greek philosophy and had this mindset that uh, all physical matter is evil and only what is spiritual and pertaining to the soul is good. And I think that's actually affected in some way many generations of the church. Many had ascetic tendencies, believing that there's virtue in being poor and living a meager life and abstaining from enjoyments. And rather, if you resist enjoyment for your body, you were somehow on a more spiritual plane. And sometimes Christians today can think in these ways. There are some who struggle in their conscience to enjoy things in this life. Because of all the warnings about materialism, we could drift to the other side of the pendulum and feel guilt for things that God gave as a gift. Uh, To despise gifts and abundance, that line of thinking is erroneous and found nowhere in the Bible. Scripture, uh, from the beginning in the garden, even all the way to the end in the new earth, always includes the physical creation as being good including all its provisions, and including even the body. So it's important that we we keep this in mind as a lesson, first of all. But second of all, the Bible also teaches that possessing abundance is not evil. Some might need this for their conscience. Wealth in itself is morally neutral. Possessing abundant wealth is not a sin in itself. There's numerous examples given to us throughout Scripture of of godly, righteous people who had great wealth. Abraham and Job had great wealth in the Old Testament period. There's people in the New Testament churches who had great wealth, and they're never told to get rid of all their wealth, but rather they're told to share from their wealth. Joseph of Arimathea um, was a wealthy man who provided the tomb of Jesus. Uh, Having this world's goods in abundance and enjoying one's prosperity is acceptable before God. And when it's received with gratitude and with glory to Him, it has the potential to be used for the good of His kingdom purposes. Uh, One should not feel condemned for enjoying what God provides as a gift. And Asher is an example set before us early on in the story of Scripture that they would be a productive tribe and they would have abundant wealth and their, and their prosperity surpassed the other tribes. And that was okay. It was God's blessing. So that's a lesson we can learn from this just at the outset. Uh, now having established this as a lesson and as an anchor, uh, for the freedom of one's conscience, uh, there's, of course, major pitfalls that come with having abundance. Uh, Jesus and the apostles gave stern warnings concerning those who contain much wealth to beware of the hold it can have upon them. The deceitfulness of riches is one of the things that keeps the seed from sprouting in the four soils. Asher prospered through the generations and had abundance to enjoy, but this brought with it a danger as well. And when you zoom ahead in the tribe of Asher, as they're productive and as they're gaining more and more abundance as a tribe, we see in Judges chapter 5 that their descendants had become lethargic and complacent in their situation. In context, in in Judges 5, it's referred to a lot in this series because it's a song about the 12 tribes sung by Deborah and Barak. And 
they rallied a bunch of, uh, they wanted to rally a bunch of tribes to help them in battle, and some showed up and some didn't. And you remember last week, uh, Issachar was one of the ones who joined the front lines. Well, there were other tribes who were more indifferent. And concerning Asher, this is what they say in their song. Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Uh, When Asher was called for military aid, they decided to sit it out. Uh, They were much more preoccupied with what they had going on in their own land, in their own prosperity, than to venture out and help another tribe of God's people. It says in the text, they sat still, which is a rebuke concerning their disposition toward the work of the Lord. This is a time to help in deliverance. And they became apathetic and unmoved by any plight among God's people in the world. They're just comfortable living the good life. And there's a lesson here for God's people that serves as a warning. A second lesson from Asher in their abundance. The more of the world you have, the more susceptible you are to becoming worldly. Uh, You and I need to be aware of this. And don't dismiss this from yourself by considering yourself lower on the economic strata. uh, You don't really have much abundance because we're wealthy compared to many in the world. We have so much abundance, and, and with that, we too can become apathetic and useless to the kingdom of God. This is exactly what happened to the, the church at Laodicea in Revelation. The lukewarm church that Jesus rebuked in Revelation 3. They sort of resemble Asher. It says they let their wealth and their status drown out zeal for the Lord's mission. They weren't hot. They weren't cold, but they were lukewarm. And Jesus spews them out of his mouth. Uh, It's not wrong to have abundance, but beware that it becomes an idol. Now, we don't know much about what became of many in Asher's tribe, uh, but we do know that such abundance was surely plundered someday as a judgment because God had sent the Assyrians to later take the northern tribes into captivity. And so this exalted tribe with their prosperity would have eventually been humbled. And that begs the question, were there any left? Were there any who repented? And we do have one in Scripture in our New Testament. Luke chapter 2 actually describes a faithful, humble Asherite who saw Christ as a child. It says this in Luke 2, There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And later on, it says what characterized her in verse 37, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping, get this, with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now there's a lot that could be gleaned from that simple encounter. But there's a few things worth mentioning here. For for one thing, uh, we see that God had kept track of of all the tribes of Israel. This is just a good verse, a proof text against those who would say that perhaps the ten lost tribes, so to speak, Uh, were gone and assimilated into Syria and never to come back again. Uh, God was fully capable of keeping track of all the tribes, no matter where they had gone. And he, He kept a remnant for Himself, as we see here with Anna. Another thing that's worth noting is that this woman of God was faithful to the Lord and His work in the world. Totally different than what her tribe had become. She was looking for the Messiah. She was having her quarters within the temple of God. And note what an interesting contrast to the, to the tribe who was overcome by their abundance of rich food. What characterizes her is that she is always fasting. 
uh, the tribe whose food became their idol, now had a faithful one who was not overcome by the delicacies, but her food was to seek the Lord. Just a fascinating tie. Back to the bedside of Jacob in Genesis 49. We're going to press on here. Uh, He moves on from Asher, his son, who it looked like it was a prophecy without significance, but it was loaded with significance. He He goes to his next son and addresses Naphtali. Naphtali, verse 21. I've heard it pronounced both ways, by the way. I've heard Naphtali by scholars. I've heard Naphtali. We'll go with one. Here's what he says to Naphtali. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Now at this point, in reading this version from the ESV, I do have to make an important linguistic clarification because it's actually different than many other translations of the Bible. Naphtali is told he will be like a female deer let loose, which this is indicating the swiftness that would mark the tribe. But the second part of the verse is actually subject to different translations. It says in our ESV text, that bears beautiful fawns. Like, oh, they're going to have little young deers. Metaphorically, of course. Uh, Older translations, such as the King James, and also more modern, up-to-date translations, such as the New American Standard and Legacy Standard Bible, have a more literal word-for-word translation. And all these versions agree that the prophecy should actually be more accurately said that Naphtali will utter beautiful words or he will give beautiful words. Apparently, as I was studying this, the the Hebrew word is very similar to a young fawn, but most have said that this is the most accurate. And in fact, um, every single Old Testament scholar and commentator I read from says that this is the better translation. And so, with this in mind, it is really that they're going to be known for swiftness and that they're able to speak beautiful words. And contextually, within Genesis, this actually makes sense because we actually know something about the son, Naphtali, earlier in the book. Chapters back in Genesis, these two qualities of swiftness and speech are both demonstrated by him. When the sons had encountered Joseph in Egypt, uh, whom Jacob thought was dead, it's recorded that Naphtali was the one appointed by the brothers to run all the way from Egypt back to his father, back where the promised land was, and to give his father the news. And so he must have run fast. (laughs) He's running all the way from from Egypt on a journey, goes back to Jacob, and gives him the wonderful news That Joseph is alive. And this, of course, would have been probably the most, one of the most emotional moments in the patriarch's life. This son who he so loved, who we thought was dead, is now alive. And as Jacob's going around on his deathbed, he sees Naphtali. I'm thinking he recalls this and he looks into Naphtali's eyes. And he says, Naphtali is going to be a swift deliverer of beautiful words. And prophetically, this is saying something about his offspring that will characterize them. That they'll be swift as a doe let loose. Meaning that just as Naphtali as a son was quick in his mission, so the tribe will be known for their agility and their speed. And this was actually true if you look at Naphtali and their history. They're they're known for having quick military operations. They respond quickly to direction when going to battle. They're not a tribe who delayed. And the use of a deer is also fitting as a metaphor because they would dwell in the mountainous terrain around the Sea of Galilee, right next to Zebulun, which we saw last week. And this commercial area was known for having a fast pace of life. This tribe will also be characterized by the beautiful things that it has to offer. They are able to express beautiful things in their speech. And this characteristic of their words is actually seen in initial fulfillment 
in the song I referenced earlier in Judges 5, because Deborah and Barak are from the tribe of Naphtali. It only says Barak is, but there's an indication that it's likely that Deborah was too. And it's one of the most beautiful songs in Scripture. And it's this tribe that was just able to articulate the providence of God with beautiful words. They're good at poetry. They're good at articulating. They're quick in battle. They utter beautiful words. But there's yet a further uh, possible fulfillment of this tribe's ability to use speed and speak beautiful words. You might have heard me say a minute ago that they're located around the Sea of Galilee next to the same area as Zebulun. And I hope that when you hear uh, Galilee that your ears perk up a little bit because that's the area and the base that Jesus began His public ministry. And Matthew 4 actually mentions this in fulfillment of Isaiah. Matthew chapter 4 says, And leaving Nazareth, He, Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And he goes on um, to describe it. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those who are dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now did you see that? Uh, The region of Naphtali, in addition to Zebulun, would be the location prophesied by Isaiah that Jesus would begin His public ministry. It was the first area that was subdued by the Assyrians, and it would be the first one ushering in redemption in His ministry. And in the next verses in the chapter, He calls His disciples to follow Him. And He trains them to become His witnesses in the years that would follow when He's gone. Now we don't know with certainty the tribal lineages of these early fishermen disciples. But it's remarkable that they're from this region and that Matthew wants to make a note of it. Some scholars have proposed that it's possible some of these early disciples were from Galilee and that they're from the tribe of Naphtali. And like deer let loose, perhaps they also fulfill this prophecy because they will be let loose by the Lord to move with swiftness throughout the Roman Empire to speak the beautiful words of the Gospel. It's an interesting thing to wonder. Regardless of the speculation uh, or their affiliation of of their tribe in this prophecy, um, the truth still stands as a lesson for us regarding beautiful words. A lesson we learned from Naphtali. Uh, God wants us to be swift messengers of His beautiful words. God wants us to be swift messengers of His beautiful words. His beautiful words are, of course, the entirety of Scripture, but more specifically, He has given us in the Great Commission the beauty of the Gospel message. We proclaim the beautiful story of Jesus, the Messiah, and that all who repent and believe in Him will be saved. Nothing more beautiful can be uttered by us. And no message is more needed in a lost world. Uh, Let's never lose sight of the fact that uh, we are each His messengers. And that we must be swift in proclaiming it due to urgency. Urgency because you don't know how much time you have left to proclaim the Gospel to those you know. Also urgency because you don't know how much time they have to hear it. Yes, God is sovereign. And there's times to look for open doors and we're not going to be reckless. But let's also remember that that's in tension with our responsibility. And it's equally a scriptural truth that there is urgency for us to evangelize. And it's this urgency that sparked the early church to, with swiftness, spread the Gospel from Jerusalem and into Samaria and through Judea, through the ends of the earth. In families, to their neighbors, in their synagogues and marketplaces, in missionary journeys through the nations and to the ends 
of the Roman Empire and still to this day in missions. Wherever God has assigned us, whoever God brings to us, we need to be swift to seek an open door. I remember someone saying once that they're afraid of asking God for open doors because He might open one. You might have to go through it. But let's remember that they're beautiful words we have. Romans 10.15 Interesting verse in light of what we just said here. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who bring good news. It's beautiful and it's implying movement. I'm going to turn our attention back to Genesis 49. And we have uh, two more sons. And I'm going to press on. Uh, Two more sons. And it's in the son that we most probably know the most is uh, Joseph among his 12 brothers. And I'm going to actually give a flashback really quick to Genesis chapter 48. So you don't need to turn there. But when he's addressing Joseph, really he's speaking a double fulfillment. Uh, There's so much that we know about Joseph, and he's probably so well known. I'm not even going to tell his story in this sermon. His his own story is probably a series in itself. Um, And so I'm not even going to go through every aspect of his prophetic blessing. Um, It's a much lengthier five verses. What I'm going to do is simply summarize the significance of his blessing as regards to his two sons from Genesis 48 and explain what Joseph is, or what Jacob is saying here. Uh, Joseph is unique among the other sons. Remember that they're living in Egypt at the time of this deathbed scene. They're there because of him. And their survival has happened through the famine linked to him and how God had providentially used his brother's evil against him and meant it for good. And from what we have recorded, Joseph has also been the most godly and full of faith out of all the sons that we see, despite his circumstances. And it's to his offspring that the firstborn birthright, the one that was forfeited by Reuben, falls to his line. We talked about how the the blessing of leadership fell to Judah in the royal line. But there was a birthright that in the ancient world was a double inheritance, getting a double portion of what the father had to give. And again, as um, in Jacob's case, he would divide his inheritance by 12. I'm sorry, normally he would have by 12. He would go by 13 and give one son twice as much. And this would be Joseph. In Genesis 48, now this has been on the screen, and you're like, who are those two guys? These are Joseph's sons. There's a whole scene, just to summarize, where Jacob pronounces a double inheritance upon two of Joseph's sons, who he has with uh, a Gentile. And he assigns the first special portion to the younger son, similar to his own blessing that came to the younger, to Ephraim, and a second portion to a son named Manasseh. And this is how the, the double portion of the inheritance would be fulfilled in Joseph. And now it's significant they were blessed because the double blessing bestowed by Jacob meant that instead of producing one tribe, Joseph would actually produce two tribes. Many of the lists of the tribes throughout Scripture, when you look at them, it's actually very rare that Joseph is mentioned as a tribe. It's like four times, I think, that he's mentioned. Uh, Usually, Scripture mentions Ephraim and Manasseh as their own tribes within the tribes of Israel. That's how expansive his blessing would be. And both would be incredibly fruitful in their populations, which is especially seen in in the, the census calculations in the book of Numbers, before and after the wilderness wanderings. Ephraim and Manasseh combined had more than the largest individual tribe of Judah. Lots of people. Big population. And just to give a little context for each one, uh, Ephraim had prominence as the one who was blessed first and is often later used as a synonym even for the whole northern kingdom when you look at the prophets. 
His tribe would also produce some important people in Israel's history. Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim, as an example. Uh, Manasseh would be blessed as well. They would actually be very abundantly blessed because they would be a half-tribe in the east of the Jordan and also a half-tribe in the west with the greatest land allotment of any of the tribes. So Joseph's line, splitting into these two streams, is a very fruitful tribe. And Joseph's oracle in verses 22 through 26 can be summarized as the overflow of fruitfulness that God would bring on all Joseph's offspring. The overflow of fruitfulness that God would bring upon all Joseph's offspring. Here's a quick summary. I'm just going to go through these verses. The um, Cliff Notes version here. And you can just look at these set of verses. I'll just have them up on the screen and I'll summarize them. I'll read all of verse 22 though. It's a, not a long one. Verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring, his branches run over the wall. Verses 23-25 give a look back and a look ahead, speaking first of how Joseph had encountered many hardships from his enemies. That was Joseph's story. A lot of hardships. And he's likening them to archers who kept shooting at Joseph. And it says that he was helped by the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd and the stone of Israel. That's the look back. He also gives a look forward. He, he says that jo- Jacob, um, I'm sorry, Jacob says that his God will continue to help him and that the Almighty will bless him with the blessings of heaven above. This is the most elaborate blessing of any of the sons. Now, in an earthly sense, uh, this fruitfulness that would mark Joseph would, of course, be fulfilled in the land as there would be rain and fruitfulness from actual literal fruit. Also, fruitfulness in terms of the population as they would go and be fruitful in the land and populations would come from them. Uh, There's also a greater, though, more spiritual fruitfulness from heaven above with regard to the blessings of God's salvation. This is, of course, seen throughout the tribe's history with actual believers from the tribe. But then we're given this grand culminating fulfillment at the end of the age. And it's given in the New Testament. In the tribal list of Revelation 7, kind of the other bookend of Scripture, it's mentioned that God seals 12,000 saints from each tribe in Israel. And if you recall, I said last week, Dan is omitted from this list. Well, who takes Dan's place? Oh, the list replaces him with the tribe of Manasseh. And then Joseph is listed as the other. And so you have 12,000 from Joseph and 12,000 from Manasseh, which is really double the amount of saints being restored to the Lord from Joseph's line. This is the ultimate fruitfulness. By God's sovereign grace, Joseph will have double the elect from Israel's restoration. A double remnant in the Lord's revival of His people Israel. And this is the ultimate blessing from heaven. And back in Genesis 49, in verse 26, the last verse of His blessing, it says these blessings will surpass his ancestors. And he refers to Joseph as the one who was set apart from his brothers. Now what set Joseph apart? A lot of things set him apart. Uh, He was literally set apart when he was sold and transported to Egypt. Uh, But what most set Joseph apart was really God in his life. In fact, if you look at these prophecies, all of them in the whole chapter... Take note of the fact that out of only one out of all the twelve directly mentions God. And it's Joseph's. A few times. It's mentioned uh, he's the Almighty, the Mighty One. And that's interesting. 
God was the center of Joseph's life. And that set him apart. Now, there's so many lessons to learn from the life of Joseph. I'm just going to draw out two that are related to these prophecies from this double tribal blessing. For one thing, we learn from Joseph and his tribe, all fruitfulness comes from God in ways we would never have devised. All fruitfulness comes from God in ways we would never have devised. That's a great summary of Joseph's life lesson. God's will is that all of His people will bear fruit in their sanctification and in the work of ministry. Jesus told us to abide in Him as the vine. And that it is the Father's will that we bear much fruit. And in bringing forth this fruit, He prunes the branches. And it hurts. He prunes the branches. And Joseph was very pruned by the Lord. If Joseph had been given the opportunity early on to to map out his journey of how greatly he would be blessed, I think he would never have chosen the path that God had for him. I mean, Joseph went through trials. Described by Jacob like arrows that are shot at him. But God was with him. And from all these experiences, he was working in him, eventually preparing him for the work he would do. And God, in doing this in Joseph's life, and in your life, in my life, uh, he is using the suffering to do a work to bear fruit. The vine dresser is pruning you. And when you're in the pit, like Joseph was, so to speak, Remember that it is the pit of providence. All fruitfulness comes from God in ways we would never devise, but it is good. Another lesson from the prophecy and from Joseph's life, uh, be faithful in life's low points and wait for God's timing to lift you up. Be faithful in life's low points and wait for God's timing to lift you up. Uh, It was important for Jacob to to look back on Joseph's life as he's recounting this to his brothers to remind everyone that the Lord had been his help. And he's the one who would exalt him. Uh, Joseph was, of course, literally exalted to a position of authority in Egypt. But his life also serves as an example for all believers at their low points. Uh, Many times among his people, uh, God is refining them for future usefulness that they don't know about yet. Joseph surely had no idea that God was preparing him through trial after trial. Uh, But he didn't take it upon himself to be self-seeking and have selfish ambition What so marks Joseph is, unlike his father, he's not a schemer. His job was simply to be faithful. It's God who hands out the promotions. It's God who lifts up His people in His way. Now, I want to make a note that God doesn't guarantee lifting us to high earthly positions in this life. He doesn't even promise future usefulness in this life, but many times I think he does. I think about uh, Moses when he's in Midian all those years who fled Pharaoh. God was grooming him for the great victory that would happen in the Exodus. Or I'm thinking of like Elijah who's at Cherith. He's, he's waiting for the great victory that will happen later at Carmel. God often prepares his people and, and Jesus embraced the cross before he got the crown. And God doesn't guarantee that in this life But I should mention that though you're not guaranteed tomorrow, one thing we do know is that every last saint will ultimately be lifted up in glory. And it's going to surpass everything in this life. Romans 8.18 says that it's not even to be compared to the suffering we endure. It's coming. You will be lifted up if you are in Christ 
So be faithful. Be faithful. These are some of the valuable lessons we learned from Joseph and his blessing. Now there's one more son. He's probably out of breath at this point, talking to 11 sons. He gets to the 12th son, and it's his youngest son, a very beloved son. And I almost wonder if this last one is pithy because he didn't have much breath left in him. He's just going to give one final blessing. And he looks at the baby of the family, who's not a baby at this point, but he's, he's the youngest and the darling to his father. He looks at Benjamin. Sorry, Benjamin. <laughs> he's like, what? <laughs> uh, there's one more son that the dying Jacob turns to. And look at what he says to him in his prophetic blessing in verse 27. Probably not what Benjamin expected as the youngest and the smallest. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. It just almost seems like an anticlimactic ending to all this series of blessings. Jacob describes Benjamin's future tribe as being compared to a ravenous wolf. And we're kind of wondering, that doesn't really sound good. I don't don't know, is it good? Yes. (laughs) It's both and, actually. If you look at Benjamin's history in Scripture, it's a pithy prophecy with the imagery of a ferocious, hungry wolf on the hunt, catching its prey, eating and tearing it to pieces during the day, but then having enough to eat for the rest of the pack at night, dividing the spoil. That's the picture which is given in the metaphor. And it's really a picture representing the Benjamites as being a warlike tribe. And we know it's a warlike because it's hinted at in the words dividing the spoil. More specifically, this warlike spirit that would characterize Benjamin's descendants would not merely be about defensive war, which if you remember with Gad, they learned to be defensive. He looks at Benjamin and he says, no, no, your tribe, they're on offense. Your tribe goes to war. They're wired to take the initiative and fearlessly go forward, determined to have conquest. That's the the context of this type of war. It speaks of conquest. And this is why a ravenous wolf is a fitting metaphor, because the context is conquest, as Moses is writing this to the Israelites in the plains of Moab, getting ready to conquer the promised land. Uh, Benjamites are those not merely waging the defensive war, but they're ready to go. And a wolf is uh, characterized because Benjamites, in many situations in their history, would often be known for being assertive. And they always seem to be determined to get their objective done. They tend to be like those who always see black and white. And that could be a good thing, but... Sometimes there's nuance, and they're, just, they're black and white, uh, full speed ahead, what you might call rough around the edges. Those are, those are Benjamites through Scripture. Now you could probably see how such characteristics can be negative or positive, depending on how it's gone about. Boldness and fearlessness are good things. Uh, But brashness and inconsideration are not good things. And in the context of warfare, conquest and plunder is usually an evil thing throughout human history. Unless it's God's conquest. Unless it's the instrument of God's judgment, which it would be upon the Canaanites, as the twelve tribes were getting ready to conquer the promised land. So with that context, the Benjamites being told that they would be fearless and bold and successful in war, this could be a good thing for their tribe. But with that said, with that wolf-like spirit, there would also be the pitfall for such warriors to pursue their own types of conquests. 
And throughout biblical history, we see Benjamites expressing their wolf-like spirit really in both ways. Sort of a mixed tribe. There's examples of Benjamites with godly boldness. And there's others with fleshly brashness and even lust. So there's good wolves going to war and there's bad wolves. What I'm going to do is, visually even, uh, give you a few examples of each type of Benjamite in Scripture, with just a few examples. So I made a little chart here. Let's look at a few Benjamites throughout Scripture. I'll start on the negative side so that we can end on more of a positive note. On the negative side, the the bad examples of Benjamites who abused their wolf-like ferocity, there's many. Um, For one, the one that really pops out of your Old Testament is really the, the darkest in the whole Bible would be when the whole tribe was acting in the book of Judges. Now, Judges is not a good account for really many of the tribes. Um, Benjamin was particularly dark in Judges. And the last few chapters of Judges are really the most brutal and, and sickening to read in your Bible. Because this tribe collectively, um, for one thing, I think it's in chapter 19, they, they rape and abuse a woman. And it, it sparks outrage throughout the other tribes. And it even makes them the center of a civil war. And it even decimates them to only a few survivors, making them the smallest tribe. And so collectively, that's a bad type of being a warlike people. Driven by their impulses. A dark era for Benjamin. How about an individual Benjamite? Here's a specific example that I think everyone here knows. A a big bad wolf, so to speak. Uh, Saul of Kish. Otherwise known as the first king of Israel, King Saul. He's a Benjamite. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. And he was definitely known for his wolf-like brashness. If you recall, he was really good at military expeditions. And he really starts kind of promising and even good. But as his reign continues, we start to see the dark side of the wolf. As his reign continues, he actually perfectly fits the metaphor. Because in his uh, hateful and mad jealousy of David, he goes on a hunt. And the rest of his reign, David is is running away as a fugitive. And he's, he's hiding places for years. And it's like Saul is literally hunting to find David. And he's ravenous. And he wants to murder him. He's like a wolf. Not in a good sense. Saul hunting David was an ungodly bloodthirstiness. So that's a couple examples. One corporately and one in an individual of the bad side of the Benjamites. We need some positive now. So let's get a few positive examples. I'll start another with another one of a collective um, effort at good from the tribe of Benjamin. We saw that it was evil in Judges. There is, however, a time in Israel's history when a large faction of Benjamites showed faithfulness. And it's in the time of the kings. First and second kings are two books in your Bible, but really they would be one book in the Hebrew canon, as just in two scrolls. In kings, Benjamin is actually a faithful tribe. You remember when the kingdom had split after Solomon, there was the northern kingdom, and then there was the southern kingdom of Judah. And it says that, in, I think it's 1 Kings 12, that uh, no tribe but Judah was faithful to David's line. And I think that speaks of it holistically. But there were factions and parts of others, a couple others, that remained faithful. One was a group of Levites who, although they were scattered, they, some of them stayed in Jerusalem and ministered in the temple in the years that followed. And then there was the tribe of Benjamin, the ones who see black and white. And a large faction of them, and there's not many of them left over the years, decide to throw their lot with Judah. And out of all the tribes, it was Benjamin 
who for the most part boldly remained faithful and continued with Judah. So that the, the two tribes of the kingdom of Judah were Judah and Benjamin. They're faithful to David's line. And this is probably because of the influence of uh, Jonathan. Jonathan, the Benjamite, the son of Saul, was not like his father, but helped David. And it's likely that many in his people um, sided with him. So that's an example of goodness. They're bold and they stand with God's anointed. Another side with an individual comes from the book of Judges, actually. It wasn't all bad in Judges. There was a judge by the name of Ehud. Ehud in Judges chapter 3 was a Benjamite, one of the first ones that God raises up to deliver his people. And he demonstrates a wolf, he demonstrates a wolf-like quality in a good way. He saw the oppression of the Moabites under king a king named Eglon, and he decides he's just he's going to do something about it. And it's really a, a fascinating story. Um, because he literally marches straight into the king of Moab's headquarters, his palace, and it's, it's really a grisly scene. He goes straight up to the king, and he says, hey, I have a message from God. And he takes out his sword and stabs him. And you can read the text later. It's exactly what happens. And uh, it's, a, it's a disgusting sort of scene, too, because it says that his hand gets stuck in there, and when he pulls it out, all the entrails of the king falls out. And then what happens next is just like, whoa. He, he, after the king dies, it says that he looks around, he locks the door, and he just walks away and goes home. Like, job done. And the, the officials outside have no idea what's happening. They're like waiting. What's, the, what's going on with the king? They find him later. He heads back at home making dinner probably. That's a, that's a Benjamite wolf right there. He just went boldly and got the job done. Uh, but he was used by God. And it says he judged Israel for years. A bold warrior in God's hand. And there are others I could list in Scripture. Um, Esther and Mordecai are bold Benjamites. They're, they are bold at a critical time in Israel's history. But I'm just going to give you one more individual. One more Benjamite, who actually falls into both columns. Maybe some of you know who I'm going to mention. It depends on what side of the timeline of his life you look at. But there's another Saul in Scripture, Saul of Tarsus. This is the New Testament connection for Benjamin. Centuries later, in the age of the church, Saul of Tarsus, who was a proud Benjamite, would demonstrate the evil side of being a Benjamite wolf. In that he, like the other Saul, was bold and on the hunt. And rather than hunting for one individual like David, Saul hunts for the Christians. And he's zealous in it to destroy the church. And his hunt is so great, he's going to go all the way to those who are fleeing to Damascus. In fact, even when Stephen is, mur- is killed and his cloak is brought before him and he stands in approval, it's like the spoils. He kind of resembles this wolf. And he wants to bring back saints to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem as spoil. That's Saul of Tarsus. Not a good Benjamite. And of course you know that his hunt to Damascus doesn't quite end the way he plans. He comes across Jesus the Messiah himself on the road. And this Saul becomes a believer and for the rest of his life preaches the faith he once sought to destroy. Uh, The Apostle Paul then becomes the godly version of the wolf. And rather than a bloodthirsty hunt, he goes on missionary journeys to hunt for souls who God had appointed to believe. And it's like I just see him, and he's like he's conquering throughout the Roman Empire by the Spirit and through the Word. And new churches are being planted, and he's laying foundations where none had been laid. And he's dividing the spoil of the kingdom. Fascinating. 
we learn from Benjamin an important lesson. This is a lesson, I think, for us. God's people are to be bold and advance forward for Christ's kingdom. Uh, It's important for all of us to remember uh, which kingdom is advancing. Uh, Christ said that He will build His church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Uh, Gates are defensive. Satan's kingdom is on defense. Meaning that no citadel of Satan or this world can prevent Christ from advancing forward. Uh, His is the victory. And in light of this, His people ought to be bold and run to the battle for forward movement. Kind of like the Benjamites. You, You and I are not to be passive in the spiritual war. We're to see what's black and white. We're to see what is clear in our mission. And we're to go full speed ahead. There are times to be cautious and times to use careful discretion in situations. We all know that. There's times to be winsome in our witness. But let's see to it that we never mistake cowardice and worldly fear for those things. You can get in a trap of always being the incognito Christian. Never really seeing doors open. I just don't see a door yet. I just don't see a door yet. And maybe they're right there. There are times when it will not be safe or comfortable to be faithful to Christ. There are times when His warriors need to march forward. There are times when we need to stand boldly for truth when it is controversial. There are times to fight. And this is a good lesson we learn from the bold tribe of Benjamin. Now We've come to the end of the 12 sons and the 12 tribes in this three-part study. I'm glad it's been three parts. If you you can even believe it, it was originally at the very beginning going to be one sermon. Um, I'm thankful that we've been able to look at all of these. Uh, Jacob has no more sons to bless. He's gone through all 12. And the chapter really ends with Jacob laying back on his bed and he breathes his last and he passes away. And the text actually puts it in a beautiful way. It says he's, he's gathered to his fathers. And the reader at the end of Genesis is really left on a journey now to see these 12 sons and their tribes laying out the rest of the drama as it would culminate in the kingdom. Jacob, or as he's called Israel, dies. And the 12 sons and their offspring live on to become the 12 tribes that form the remainder of the biblical story. In learning these lessons, there's a reminder that God's people, no matter the age they're living in, all have the same lessons to learn. That's something I've gotten from this. Uh, We learn the same lessons Many of the same strengths. Many of the same weaknesses. Many of the same trials and the same temptations. The same God of providence. The same warnings and the same encouragements. And this is the the glory of Scripture and in its living and active work in our hearts. And above all, we're all prophetically blessed as we have been saved by the same Messiah, the same Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we wait for the same blessed hope. What prophetically began in Genesis finds its ultimate bookend of fulfillment in the consummation of Revelation. And so I'll close with this last little bit at the end of Revelation 21. I'm not going to read that whole chunk there, but the eternal state is being ushered in and and heaven is being descended down to earth and it's beautifully adorned. And in this adornment, it says there will be 12 gates and on these gates are written the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And this is balanced by the, the 12 foundations which bear the names of the 12 apostles. Old Testament saints represented by the 12 tribes and New Testament saints represented by the 12 apostles 
will all dwell together to enjoy the glory of God and the Lamb, our common Messiah. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is it's breathtaking. It's amazing that so much of Your history could be contained in one chapter and unfold just shows the veracity of Your Word. It shows the trustworthiness of Your Word. It shows that, Lord, You're not yet done. We also, as the sons must have seen only in part and had no idea what would unfold, uh, we too are still in that story. And Lord, we want to learn from their lessons. We want to apply it. I pray that the, the lessons we've learned would go from the mind to the heart and to the feet as we go and apply what You've taught us. Would you bless the rest of our time and that we would use our spiritual gifts to to grow in likeness to Christ, our Messiah. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.